Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they are facing. I'm Rachel Connolly from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, helping businesses connect with top tech talent. And today I am your host. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of shaping company culture from the top. I am joined by Nick Alpi from Amber Health and Care, Chris Newton from Immersive Labs, David Carboni from Policy and Practice, and Navid Benny from eDirect. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Nick, if you'd like to kick us off first, please. Yeah, hello. Um, so my name is uh, Nick Alpi. I'm the CTO of Amber Health and Care. So I held everything technical over there. And as a brief introduction, essentially, we're doing a uh, software that helps carers look after elderly people, essentially, as a five-second intro. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. Chris? Yeah, hi. Yeah, I'm Chris Newton. I'm the VP of Engineering at Immersive Labs, um, based in Bristol. And we are a cybersecurity company, but we focus on the human side of cyber. So we basically have a platform that helps businesses prove and build the resilience of their entire organization, say, to cyber threats. Thanks, Chris. David? Good stuff. So I'm David Carboni, and I'm CTO for Policy in Practice. Um, And largely what we do is analyze government data um, to identify people who are most at risk um, in order to target support to the right people. And we also have a a public-facing benefits calculator application um, also listed on gov.uk. Um, so I've yeah, spent the last couple of years sort of moving us more towards a kind of a serverless and just generally improving our technology delivery performance. Thanks, David. And Navid, we come to you next. I am Navid and uh, I am the CEO uh, of Micro2 and CMO of eDirect. Uh, we're a full digital marketing agency that operate across different countries. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Now that we're all introduced, let's move on to the topic in focus. So you all have a question or statement on shaping company culture from the top. Um, as usual, I'll work my way around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Each of you will also have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So if we start with yourself first, Nick, um, one of the things you wanted to discuss was when you should know you should stop weighing on the culture and let it morph the organisation. Um, would you like to just give us a little bit of context behind that and then we can kind of work our way around to get people's views on it? Yeah, sure. So when, when I saw that we had obviously in the room some people with a much bigger team that what we are in Amber. So right now in Amber is about 20 people and the engineering team is about uh, six, seven people. Um in the previous company that I owned, um, there was a moment, and, and we exited just at that moment where it felt that culture was about to live on its own. We didn't have to weigh in that much with Natalie, my co-founder, into like trying to force that, f- not fake culture, but trying to force the culture, trying to ignite the light to say, look, this is a place also to live. Um, we have a certain rules that we want to follow, but now like take it onto your, onto your own hands. Um, and I can see that now happening now in our engineering team, and it's still yet to happen, I think, in the rest of the team. But for the people that have crossed that path now, because I don't know what it looks like on the other side of the chasm, essentially, how do you know that you've made it? And now your culture and your your values are embedded, and your culture is living on its own. And, and once it does live on its own, how do you still ensure that it's... It, it, um, 
it's within the boundaries of what you wanted. Like, what if your culture, if you let it live on its own, a bit like I think in the email I used the game of life, where it starts on something that you control, and then all of a sudden it expands into something that you do not control. And it could be the most beautiful thing, or it could be the most horrific things, essentially. So, how do you control that, or do you even try to control, or do you just let it live its life? I don't know. Very big question, I guess. But uh, it would be nice to hear what other people think about that. Good stuff. Um, um, I'll jump in there if I may. Um, I heard a lovely um, quote, a TED talk by uh, Sir Ken Robinson. So he's talking about education and he talks about this idea of moving from command and control to climate control. I've always thought that was a really good um, quote for building a company culture where essentially you are, you're trying to get everyone aligned to a set of values, to a coherent way of thinking. And then at some point, as you say, you move from that kind of, okay, consciously creating the culture to a point where hopefully it's now within the bones of the organization and then it becomes about climate control and celebrating the things that go right noticing the things that go wrong just kind of using those as sort of opportunities to to steer things um so yeah so i think that's that's what comes up for me but i'd love to see if there's a, a resonance for anyone else there i think there's a few things that certainly play into this and i think some of it as leaders we kind of help set Obviously, the initial set of values we're trying to show, like you said, that command and control initially. I think what's inter interesting is about how do you structure communication in the organization? How do you incentivize behaviors in the organization? And are all of those things aligned and conducive to the type of culture that you want to create? And where I've seen things go wrong is where the incentive structures or the way that we think about communication and the organizational structure actually forces silos in the organization or people working in opposite directions against each other, which tends to have a negative impact on them on the culture, this kind of turf war mentality that you sometimes see forming. Same with the sales department versus a product department. It's quite often you see these things kind of playing out. And I think a lot stems from the people you hire as you grow, especially if you're growing quickly. Like how do you ensure that the people coming in are going to add to the culture and shape it in the way that you want versus maybe taking it in a different direction? And I think a lot that we're having really interesting conversations at the moment about shifting more to like performance focus versus maybe the more family friendly feel that we had at the start of the journey. And like, how does that then play into the people that you hire and how do they start to shape things in a slightly different direction as well? So obviously as you grow, that hiring piece is just so important. And what are you optimizing for through that hiring process? I mean, personally, I think it's it's uh, where we're going with uh, such a dynamic industries in and diversity that's going on right now. I don't think there is a stop on trying to say this is it now. I fine tune the culture and it's going to maintain as it is. I think the engine has to continually change as it goes and adapt and see where where things go next. And when you decide that this is it, I. I think that's where the problem has started hearing, I suppose. I think one thing to just to, to follow up on that, um, I've seen the last two companies I've been at have changed their company values a number of times. And I think that reevaluation as you grow as a company and things shift and new people come in, you expand what you're doing. Like the, the, the values that you set at the start that were really important in the foundations, like have they shifted? Are they still the most important things that you want to see in the organization to make it effective for the next stage? Of kind of growth and Nick, I'm, I'm assuming you're going through this at the moment given that small starting beginnings and then obviously growing now um but yeah that that's a really interesting point and so we did an exercise last year where we canvassed like the whole organization around okay where do you see the challenges against the current values what do you like what do you see as the gaps and the two gaps that emerged were operating as one team so like the silo formation and not every part of the business being 
completely focused on the customer. And those two things have now formed an evolution of the value. So we've still got two of the values, but two new ones kind of brought in. And I think that was really interesting to get everyone's opinion to help shape that, that kind of next step. I think that's brilliant. That was just so nice to be able to involve everyone in the process of culture development. Um, there's something there where, um, just when you're talking, Nick, about about you know the potential for a, a culture to kind of sort of evolve in a way you didn't intend, and um, and I do think it, it's it's important to be conscious about how we design and develop our cultures, um, and I, I think it, it's something that's just not on the traditional business radar. You know, it's usually about you know hire the right skills, provide the right incentives, put in place the right processes, but I think increasingly we're starting to see that actually also put in the values talk to people, make sure that we're all on the same page, you know, get that alignment on a cultural level. Um, otherwise, you, you, will, you will design a culture, but by accident rather than on purpose. And I think that's, yeah, I think there's something really important about that. I think where, where the fixations comes across when you really define and try to find out what's classified as a right culture as well. I mean, uh, within majority of businesses nowadays is about finding what is help the business to improve um from profit side of the business rather than you know the cultural side and what makes the place happy place to be with and uh, work in and i always say look um we always say the workplace is the second home and my personally tell my guys here i don't think that's the case i think it's your first home you spend more awake time here then you are at home. So in reality, I think you got to class it more of your first home and people here tend to be more, become a family because you live with each other, you talk to each other on a regular basis. So it's important to have the right values and set the right values that academic all parties. So, uh, I mean, within every business, I always say, yes, there's elements that has to be how to gain, how to maintain, but the most important part is how to have fun doing it. And uh, the last thing, it's really contributes greatly towards the other two. So uh, that's I suppose something we really have to be more focused on. And all, all the stuff from the leader side, uh, if you ask me to be frankly honest, I think um, if you are to set a right culture first, you need to understand what's the right values and um, how's the right way of trying to go about it. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Some really interesting points there. Nick, does that kind of um, resonate with you? The, those points, do you have anything else that you wanted to add or you kind of are you, you in agreement with the guys? Yeah, I am. I'm, I mean, we, we could go along with the disagreement of the word family in a company. Like I've always personally hated that word. It's like we're friends. You choose your friend, you don't choose your family kind of thing. But that's, that's a disagreement that I guess um, people will have. Uh, depending on the word they use. But the, um, I think the key is this value and it goes to these value. And I know that in the in the previous company, we used to heavily rely on those values and they were part of the, the kind of like performance process and everything. So values were encompassed everywhere. Um, I think right now we could do a better job right now into going back to the values of the new companies for Amber and yeah, going back to what are what are the values and making sure that everything that we do is transpired from those values. I think sometimes we struggle to look at them, uh, to look back at them. So that's something we certainly could do better. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. Um, Chris, we'll come to you next with your question. So 
one of the first topics you wanted to discuss was around um, RTO policies and how that might impact company culture. Uh, do you just want to give us a little bit of context behind that and then we'll work our way around the room again? Yeah, sure. So it kind of turns into my second question as well, which is around culture in a kind of remote first or hybrid environment. So I think obviously every tech company at least shifted to that remote first way of working as soon as the pandemic started. And we've seen a trickle and now like a tidal wave of um, companies in putting in place RTO policies. And I think the average is about three days a week now that um, companies are enforcing because there's some very high profile ones like the Amazon and Apples, et cetera, of this world. Um, the, the cultures of lots of companies, certainly earlier stage companies, will have evolved in a remote first kind of environment. And it's just, yeah, what impact are we seeing? And certainly if people have been through this, I'm kind of, we've been through this at Immersive as well with a two-day RTO policy. Like what are the pros, what are the cons, what's working well from a cultural perspective and what are some of the challenges? I think really digging into that would be, yeah, an interesting point to go through. I, so I don't know if it's something to add here, but one of the things that we see um, that I see currently in, in, in Amber is something, I, I don't know, so... The previous company, Cookies, we, we used to be a remote first company and we had been way before it was cool. Like it was for us, it was a recruitment thing. So we start we started, technically we started with my wife, the two of us, and essentially working together 24-7 in the same house was no good idea. So therefore, 12 years ago, we decided, well, we're going to be remote so we can be far away during the day and we meet during the evening, essentially. And then we started to hire people like Spain and Sweden and all around the UK and we kind of morphed and grew automatically as a as a remote company, not knowing that we were remote companies, just like, yeah, we were having those people and we were chatting at the time on HipChat because Slack didn't, Slack didn't exist. Um, and therefore we grew as a remote company. So we, we never, we had some challenges, like the fact that half of the team was in Bristol, half of the team was remote, and then like, how do you communicate and everything, but all that kind of like cleared itself out naturally. Where we are today, and I don't know how much it, it relates to what you were saying, but where we are today is like, because of the acquisition of cookies towards Amber, we had a team that knew how to function remotely, but it's actually some of the new hires and to some extent, some of the um, some of the people in the in the C level that are really struggling with this idea of remote working. And they would, they would love, but it's not physically possible because even the C level are all completely distributed but they're really struggling with this idea of remote working and it would love everybody or at least a, a few times a week or a few times a month to be back in the office. And I never thought I would say that because I've always worked remote and I've never seen any trouble with working remote. But even now I'm saying, do you know what? When you work with people that are not, it's not that they don't want to make the effort, they make the effort, but really this is not for them. Physically in their core, they really struggle with being on screen all the time. Then we all need to make an effort to like be in the same room um but how does that for us the culture is influenced by the fact that there are people struggling with uh with working remotely in fact more than more than the people that don't want to return to work if, if that makes it or don't want to return to the office if that makes sense for us the problem is more on to we can't return to the office because the office that we have is in bristol but one of the c-suites is in scotland the other one is in london the other one is in brighton so it doesn't make sense to come three days a week in bristol or anywhere in the country um, and we're struggling with that, um, and that's part of the struggle. I think to reiterate what Nick said as well, I suppose it's it's been a similar challenge with us as well. Uh, I mean, we were not there; we're always been office based, and with COVID, we had to obviously go back and uh, start working from home. 
And um, as Nick said, I think it's to do with mostly uh, the person itself and um, the industry, I suppose. I mean, for us as a digital marketing agency, it was a little bit difficult to stay creative when you're not bouncing idea off each other. And um, that elements of uh, trying to get that help and support um, had to be repeated uh, numerous times. So I had um, people calling me, asking me questions about certain things. And then same time, the different person called call me back and asked me the same question again. And whereas you don't really necessarily have these uh, problems within the office, as you talk about a problem, you, you, you've learned from others and you get an idea from it and so on and so on. Um, and it's really how do you set a right culture, to be frankly honest. That's, that's been a challenge for us. Like, yes, certain people are suited to be working from home and are okay. You know, they they get on with it and do the job. Uh, and uh, certain people are actually okay working from office, but as and when they decided that, you know, they actually want to go back and start doing some work from home for whatever reason, that just makes it a little bit more difficult. All right, am I allowing this person? Whether if I'm allowing this person, is this become a value or a uh, culture that I have to continue having on and off uh, hours with certain people? And why is there sometimes that you can work from home or it doesn't? And do you justify that? Do you have to put any elements of security behind your company knowing that, okay, is the folks really getting done for a person who's not really used to do this on a regular basis? So it's, it's and then the, then it, there comes the security behind it as well. So obviously uh, when you deal with sensitive data, sensitive informations, uh, when you have to move from one laptop to another laptop, from one computer to another computer, um, whether there, there is a safety is still in place when you move things around. So it's, it's not always a easy, uh, decision to make, to be frank, honest, if you ask me. And sorry, David, I will let you go, but I just realized I went onto a tangent and I forgot to recenter around culture and, um, and what David was saying kind of reminded me. So I think, Chris, and, and again, I know that you're a much larger organization than um, I can ever dream of, but in terms of where I think the struggles are going to be if we recenter around culture, at least from what I've seen in the past, again, in much smaller settings, um the the two problems i think people are going to face or companies are going to face with is returning to work obviously you have the obvious one of i don't want to go to the office and therefore you have to deal with these these individual group individuals that don't want to come to the office but again that's a um that's maybe a policy or that's a way to scheme some people i don't know but some people decide that i don't want to go back to the office you have to deal with that for me the biggest danger is these the, the returning to work will create a divide between people in the sense that regardless if everybody's happy with I'm going to the office a few days a week, nobody's going to be in the office at the same time a few days a week. And what you're going to have are conversations happening in the office, decisions being made in the office that are not sometimes communicated to the people remotely. And that is where we had the biggest struggle. When, when we had people that were, as I said, like half of the team was remote, like UK or international, and half of the team was based in Bristol, that was the biggest grief that we had from the remote people was like, oh, but clearly you talked about that at lunch and nobody told us that this decision was made kind of thing. So we had to really emphasize that even if the 10 of us that were the Bristol base, even if the 10 of us were in the office, the meeting would happen online, the decisions would be written online, like on the virtual rather than just agreeing around the table and and so these processes will have to be developed 
in order to allow safe safely people be, no fear of missing this FOMO thing of like I have to go to the office because if not I'm not going to be informed. That's probably the wrong way to want to go back to the office. Sorry, that's that's yeah. just me. yeah. I like that, and there's definitely something about that. I like to say that. The, you know, the best possible situation is everyone together in the same room, right? That's where you have the highest bandwidth of communication, the, the best connection. The next best is everybody remote, so there's no disparity. And the worst possible situation is hybrid, where you've got some people in the office chatting over lunch, and then you know, like the decisions aren't being properly made, or if there's a difficult conversation to be had, we, we maybe don't quite have the level of confidence to, to address that online. We're waiting until we see each other next in the office. So it's I think there's, there's something really, um, really powerful in just, you know, and I loved what you're saying earlier that actually some people, you know, in their core, they just prefer that kind of face-to-face physical connection. And, you know, and I, and I kind of get that because, you know, you, you hear all sorts of reasons why people do and don't want to return to the office. And, and for some, I think for some people, it is just visceral. It just feels better being in the office. Um the maybe sort of anecdotal the kind of um experience that i sometimes have is i go to the office so i'm 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 remote i work up here in scotland with one of my colleagues the companies down in london so the two of us will go to a co-working space and we will both get on video calls and go into separate booths for the entire day we'll have lunch together but actually we're basically still working remotely we're just in in a different environment and maybe the the other sort of strand to that is you know if i am actually in the office in london I am never going to get any work done as in production work. Um, I'm definitely going to get connection work done and, and communication work and spending time with people. But I know that you know if I need focused time, the office is actually the worst place to work. Um, and I think we've always known that you know open plan offices are just a bad idea for, for focus and, and getting work done. So I think it's a really complex issue. There's you know there's quite a lot of just very human things in there, whether it's the difficult conversation or the just that, you know, feeling better if you're focused at home or feeling better if you're in the office surrounded by people. Um, yeah, and I think it, it goes to that quite core and emotional level where it's not really going to be resolved by a rational conversation, but more by kind of empathizing with what, what people actually need. I totally agree with that, um, David. I think one of the things that I've observed is how the perception of leadership in a remote first or in office environment is quite different. So just give you a couple of examples. So things that people will pay attention to will shift if they only ever get to interact with leadership in a virtual environment. So for example, attendance to various meetings that might be happening. So we've been spending a lot of time on neurodiversity at the moment. So there will be a perception if a member of the executive team is not on one of those sessions or is not reacting to Slack posts that are talking about stuff that's happening. So the perception of like, or the feel of the culture is coming in a very digital form around some of these things. Whereas I think the benefits of being in an office at times is that you get to see the culture coming to life. You get it seeing represented in the actions and behaviors of the leadership of the company, like firsthand, rather than these secondhand indicators that people seem to be picking up on. So it's a real kind of subtle, nuanced view of how leadership is embodying the the culture and the values that we talk about. And it comes across in very different ways, depending on whether that person is fully remote or is actually interacting directly with leadership. So I think that, that's been a really interesting thing for me to kind of observe 
how people have shifted their views, what leadership do, what they care about, are they embodying the values in a very, very different way. Yeah. Could I, could I just come in a little bit there? So I know, you know, being very much remote, um, you know, all of my team are, are in London, except one guy who's up here in Edinburgh with me. And and I think my approach has been literally, you know, every single person on my team up until recently, every week I would speak to everyone on my team on a personal level. So I'd, I would kind of get on a video call, we'd have a 45 minute chat and I would sort of avoid talking about work and sort of until they couldn't bear it and they started telling me what they've been up to. Um, but what I was really trying to do that was make sure there was this constant heartbeat of connection of you know, saying, you know, you're safe, this is a good connection, we can talk to each other about anything and also tell me about work, but I'm not here to kind of quiz you or, or make you feel defensive. Um, and I think that's been one of my primary tactics for the for that kind of remote connection to just be able to build those relationships, um, you know, solidly, consistently, you know, over, over the years I've, I've looked after this team. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Um, David, we'll stick with you. Come with your question next. Um, the first question you had was around how we keep culture on track and tackle culture drift. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of context behind that one? Yeah, so um, I guess that maybe speaks a little bit to Nick's original question there, where you know, let's imagine you've built a company, you're proud of the culture, um, but then you know, different pressures come in, perhaps different people join, you know, perhaps there's just sort of a shift in perception, something something moves, and, and at some point your sort of spider sense just says this this isn't quite the right, you know, this is not quite the company that that we wanted or not what we intended to create. Um, so you know, I think I've seen that in in a few places in different ways. And just interested in kind of other people's experience and your thoughts on, you know, how do you, how do you keep that that attention and intention on your culture to to keep building it and keep it on track? There's a few really good ways that I've seen. Um, I'm a really big fan of like pulse survey, like engagement tools, good ones. So Office Vibe is a tool that I've used. I really really love. Um, and actually, when you get the right engagement, if you're getting 80% plus kind of participation um, from your teams, then that is a really good indicator. In fact, it's anonymous. You get a lot of qualitative and also quantitative data that can kind of back up your gut feeling that you quite often have as, as a leader about where culture's going, but you've actually got some data you, could, you can go into. So, yeah, my, my, me and my team use that heavily because that data is so so tangible and then you can back that up with other indicators like so if you've got amas happening and you're just seeing the type of questions coming through it's always quite a good indicator of that general sentiment analysis that you can kind of do across the teams um and then just talking to people right like talking to people like you were saying david like talking to your team every single week um i do skip level one-to-ones and speak to every single person across all of engineering about 60 odd people once every 12 weeks i talk to every single engineer and that's something i started during COVID when I joined and two days later lockdown two happened in the UK and it was kind of a, the only way that I could really get to, to know the team but I've carried it on because it's such a valuable source of kind of information and just that understanding what's the pulse of, of engineering at the moment how are people feeling on the ground so yeah I think you've, you've just got to take all these sources of information and like you said if there are things that seem to be going in the wrong direction hopefully you can get an early sense of that and then take some kind of course corrective action rather than letting it fester in terms of something more nefarious. Yeah, I'm going to echo. So we also use Office Vibe um, and we're using it previously as well. And and the the data, again, you have to get the engagement and it feels forced at the beginning, especially in a smaller team, like it does feel a bit forced sometimes. But once you grow and you get this engagement, it's, um, it is it is quite quite nice. What we, if I can remember in the, in, in the previous company, so 
we, we use all those tools and we use those kind of like feedback and collecting all this information. And then at some point we realize, oh, there's a disconnect between what we thought we were offering, what we thought we were doing, what people are expecting. And um, that disconnect, we can solve it, but we can't solve it on our own. We need the engagement of the team. So, yeah, we need the engagement of the team. And um, what we did for that was a um, we made it a big thing. We made it a, a much bigger than it should have been, in fact. But it was a big thing of like, look, we've listened to you. We can't address all the information. Like, We can address salaries, for example. Yeah, we give everybody a raise and this is what the pensions are going to look like and everything. But as far as the rest of the engagement and the um, uh, appropriation of like what you want to do inside the company, we can't do everything. You have to take matters into your hands. So we made it a big thing. It was a whole day and we did the presentation and we did the, like, you're going to be in charge of these, you're going to be in charge of that. And everybody kind of like was happy that we've listened. We've addressed every single point. We didn't leave left any like stone and turn. If there was stuff that we could not address now, we said, well, look, these are the points that were also raised. We're not going to address them in this quarter or in these six months. Um, we'll, we'll come back to it. But making it a big thing, um, it, it made everybody feel good, I think. And that, that helped shaping um, where, where problems were starting to be highlighted. It did help shaping it very, very quickly. Yeah, I think uh, generally speaking, everything goes back to that communication, I suppose, and, uh, from what basically Chris and Nick yourself mentioned as well. And I basically second that too. It's all about the communications and regular communications, really, and uh, getting that feedback. And um, it's always good to maintain and have some training and developments which you know just reminds people of the values again and uh it very needs to be adjusted you gotta have to be flexible value changes all the time uh, as long as it's still the right, right directions for all parties you just have to be a little bit flexible but it all comes back to that communications and uh just take it from there to be frank be honest but where if you if you were to ask me to go back to um, Nick's point around engagement, something like a pulse survey or engagement tool, the one thing that I found is really effective in driving that engagement is you actually taking action on the stuff that you're finding. So on a monthly basis, me and my team would basically pull out the highlights, like the lowlights and the highlights of what we were seeing, and we'd actually define the actions and share that with what we were doing. So we've, we've seen a trend down in like fairness around pay. So therefore, we're going to be speaking to the people team or we're going to be running these sessions and bring a bit more clarity to the way that that process is run. Where do we get the, the salary band data, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, like if you take action and are actually using that to make, hopefully improve um, the issues that you're seeing, then yeah, that's the way that that's ultimately going to drive engagement because, oh, okay, you're, you're, you're hearing us. You're listening to what we're kind of giving you and also responding to comments. So a lot of free text comments. If it's good stuff, that's fine. That's nice to hear. But it's the things where they've got a genuine complaint or a concern or an issue or a question. If you're being responsive and going back on those type of things, again, it's all anonymous or can be. Then, um, yeah, that just really shows that leadership is invested in that engagement um, tool and getting benefit from it. To want to add to this, I'd say it's always the other way around where you set a value and it's, uh, the actions against it is not the right way and it causes problems overall so how would you deal with that i mean uh, and again i always say look what you say in terms of you know uh, having some sort of survey and trying to get some sort of understanding from the other side it's always good to have some sort of accountability as well so where if things are not done right and you have to take in actions it doesn't necessarily always has to be harsh um, we have it in our company where it's it's a rule that obviously when you leave your computer it's uh, a common sense to lock your computer and for 
different variety of reasons. And uh, we've kind of made it a quite a bit of fun game out of it, where if you do not like your computer, uh, someone can jump in immediately and start uh, being naughty and messaging other colleagues within the company, as long as you maintain the boundaries, of course. Um, but uh, it's it's at a very I mean, it's it's a, immediately as soon as I mean I I participated and I let people participate to remind me I have to lock my computer computer as well. So it's it's just a rule that you start creating and you're trying to make it as fun. It doesn't have to come as as harsh as always. Okay, you're off the course now. You need to do X Y Z. It could simply be all right. What's what's the best way of trying to model that that it's fun and a stop people from uh, doing the right, the wrong thing and go to the right course of action. Good stuff. I, I just thought I wanted to pick up on something there with um, just the, the idea about engagement. I think engagement in itself, like almost aside from whatever it is that we're doing to kind of, you know, check in on people and see how things are going, you can almost get the data from the level of engagement with whatever is being done. And as one of my favorite stats, I think Gallup year after year uh, measuring employee engagement globally, and it hovers between 70 to 80 percent disengaged. So, you know, who are just not like to me, that says like probably three quarters of the value in most companies is simply not online because people are not engaging. And what I think is really interesting about particularly about remote work is that it is about engagement. You can't be watching people. You can't really be monitoring them. Um, and engagement is always voluntary, like someone can always find a way to just be disengaged. Um, so the question is how, yeah, are we creating companies, spaces, environments, tribes, families, friends, where people choose to bring their energy and feel activated within that environment? Um, I, yeah, I think that, again, that's one of those things that it's not on the standard business radar, but I think you know, understanding that engagement is always voluntary. And what do you need to do to create the environment that invites the engagement? I think there's there's something there as well. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Um, Navid, we'll come to you finally with one of your questions, um, which was about some of the challenges of shaping company culture. Um, obviously, self-explanatory in itself. So do you just want to begin by kind of giving your views to it? Um, and then we can work our way around the room again. Yeah, so um, it's, it's always one of those main questions i mean what, what are the main challenges that people really faces and uh how do you really deal with it to be frankly honest and i know these are company to company or difference and but again refers back to original thing that i said about how to gain how to maintain how to keep everything fun at the same time of doing it uh, as, a, as a business you obviously aim for one thing making sure that your business is doing well and going uh, up and not staying in one place of course and uh, there always comes with the challenges uh, when you do trying to shape a company uh, and they shape their culture. If it's a new uh, company versus its existing one, sometimes the culture has been uh, started and it's already established, as Nick said, and it uh, has some bad or good habits and it needs re reshaping. How would you really go about and what what do you think are the main challenges i suppose that you guys been facing and uh who's really mainly responsible the employee or the leadership uh in your point of view my favorite answer is that as a leaders as leadership we are always responsible regardless if like ultimately it's the people not doing what we want we are still responsible for not gaining the engagement that we wanted from from um 
the, the, the teammate. For me, one of the biggest challenge I find in driving the culture is when is is aligning the leadership around the culture. Like when you have say four, five, six leaders at the top that have different views on what the company culture should be, um, and even if there's small differences, um, inevitably they will go they will grow bigger. And doing this exercise to make sure that you we all sit down in a room and make sure that we're all comfortable with like, okay, this is where we're driving to. Because you can't have, I don't know, to, to, to go back to what Chris was saying earlier, you can't have the, the tech team having one culture and then the sales team having another culture. That's where the device is being created. And you don't have a company culture. You have like leaders culture that's transpired into their teams, but you do not have a company culture. Um, so trying to have everybody in line and try to not make it as i mean it's always tempting to try to make it bigger than it needs to be um like just try not to be dicks and try to be like nice people to each other i think it's the it's the best culture everywhere essentially so just try to start small and make sure that every single one in the room is is agreeing on to what's the next direction but then don't let it make this game of life that we talked about earlier and and regularly check in and regularly kind of like um address the course and then starts to make bigger shift once you're comfortable with the uh, with the small steps i certainly agree with this because i think uh exactly what you said it's all started with aligning the company's values and the action taken by the leadership and uh if there is any disconnect between the leaders um and the course of action then they say one thing and they do something else it's simply just going to damage the credibility and the trust and uh that's why i always say you've got to have to lead, lead by example and uh, clarify that really what is the uh, value and make it as clear as possible and make an example otherwise there'll be misunderstanding misinterpretations and we know simply it's easy for anyone to mistranslate or misread what you are trying to deliver here when you set a value and uh, and it's it's it has to always start with a leadership if you ask me and uh, it, it requires, and I'd say once it's been done, it's important to really set the right expectations. And that's, I think, where I did a struggle uh, right at the beginning because, uh, and I think most leaders actually tend to do because they have wrong expectations and they're not that patient and they have that idea in mind that they now wake up tomorrow and set a new values, set new ways of doing things to make a company uh, even better place to work with. But uh, they expect it to then following day after that, everything goes uh, honky and dory and start following that area. And that is where you need to understand that shaping a culture doesn't really happen overnight. And it, it takes its time and it's, it is about for people to, uh, you know, have some resistance from certain people because people don't like, really like the change and one thing led to other, another and that's where they start changing their leadership and become a different person, which may even damage the actual culture even furthermore. Yeah, a couple of things I'll say on this one. Um, so I think, yeah, I totally agree that leadership is the place where culture is embodied um, where people look to to get their steer on how to behave in the organization um, and what's important in the culture and our the values over here actually lived and breathed over here um, and i think the most important person is the ceo the founder of the organization and i think where i've seen the biggest shift in culture typically in a negative way is when a founder leaves and someone else comes in 
um, and having been through that a couple of times in my previous company, um, it was like, yeah, a very dramatic change. And it did happen quite quickly. And it was quite negative because the founder just truly embodied and everything flowed down from that founder and their beliefs um, and the values that they set the company about. Like they, they were the ones who lived and breathed it. I think to one of your, your points now about people resistant to change, if you want to shift your culture because it's you want to take a different direction, like as the company scales, you know, like right now we need to focus on a different set of values to be successful for this next phase. Yeah, I totally agree. That, that resistance to change and how do you do the change management piece? And you can't just like shift from here to here. It is that long-term investment, like you say. So taking people on the journey, you've got to over-communicate and you've got to accept the fact that some people might, it might be their time to get off the bus. And actually you need some new people on the bus who are ready for this next phase and who really do embody the values that are now going to be most important for the kind of growth. Yeah, never. Definitely. I mean, I would hugely echo that. So a policy and practice, we, you know, we have actually been on, on a serious culture journey for the last two or three years. And, you know, when, when I arrived, it was, you know, it wasn't in the best place. So we've, you know, it, it did take, it did take probably a couple of years to, to really shift that. And as you're saying there, Chris, like some people did just decide, you know, it's time to get off the bus. Like we're, we're not, we're not down with this new culture. Um, um, but what it did do was it, it sort of set a tone, and I think it's about it's you know it's for leadership to set that tone and say you know, this is who we are now. Do you resonate with that? Because if you do, look, this is going to be great. And if you don't, this is probably not going to go so well. Um, so one of one of the principles I've been working with, and uh, this might sound a little bit odd at first, but I think it really makes sense. So it's this idea of manage for energy. Um, so what I'm trying to do is align the bottom line of the business with the culture. So I'm trying to say the better your culture, the better your bottom line. So they're not they're no longer in opposition. Like culture isn't the thing that you do that takes away from business priorities. So this idea of manage for energy, the better your culture, the more you activate the energy in your people, the more energy there is in the company, the better the company performs. And so you can get yourself into this really nice virtuous circle where you know, the more authentic you are, the more aligned you are with values, the the better you are at kind of, I love that phrase, over-communicating, because you really do have to kind of set that tone. Um, that as that really kind of, you know, switches people on and people are starting to go, wow, I really love this place. I want to bring other good people to this place. You know, it creates this center of gravity that, that you know, sort of builds up this momentum in the organization, which I know, like, I've had the fortune to do this, you know, with several teams over the years and several companies. And and each time, like, what, what emerges is completely unique, but it, it has this kind of common thread of just feels like what you're doing is you're not, you're not making something, you're not forcing something, you're activating something that was already there in the people. And it's unique because the people are unique, but it's incredibly powerful. And each time I see it, I'm just like, this is amazing because like we're all having a great time. You know, this is this is fun even when it's hard. Um, and and also, you know, it's just it's it's getting some great results. So yeah, I just I, I think there's there's something incredibly powerful there that that you know kind of isn't on the radar for everyone. But I think once you see it, it's very difficult to unsee it. And when we talk about these communication and over communication, we've been talking about these word values for like um, 15 minutes now. And um, if I look at myself back for like, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years ago, I used to hate that word values because it's like for me, it's like four words that you plaque on a website and one is innovation, the other one is care, caring, and the other one is whatever. And they were just four words and I never managed to make any sense of it. It's like, why are we doing these? 
everybody has the same. Uh, it doesn't work for me. Like I don't understand. And then one day Nat actually booked like a, a proper company that is responsible to explain to you how to set a value and how to explain a value. And what we found was that all of a sudden, the, the most important part of the value is not this flashy word that is at the top that is usually that big word and tries to sound pretentious. It's all the points that you put in there that explains what this value means. So like, you know, what does innovation means for your company? How do you value innovation? How would you measure innovation? And these are all the points that you explain. And once we started to have that, then you can start explain to the team hey, this value over there that we want to encompass, that we want to um, live and breathe, this is what it means. Don't don't focus on this word over there. That word is just a summary of all these paragraphs over there. That That's the most important part. And over-communicating on those values, yeah, to me, was a transfer, transformational exercise. Um, and it allows all the leadership to be like in line with what does this value means, essentially, as well. So, but it's a really difficult exercise to go through yourself unless you know how to do it, like, again, um, you, you have to be helped by someone to uh, to achieve that or, I don't know, read a ton of books or YouTube or whatever. Just to pick up a little bit on the values piece there, the, um, I read an interesting book recently, I couldn't tell you the title, but it talked about the difference between so sort of identity values and permission to play values. And permission to play values are things like honesty, integrity. It's like you couldn't have a value that was not that, otherwise you probably just would have an awful company. Um, so I've actually gone out of my way, I've kind of figured, I won't go into it, but my my kind of values that I've picked up, I now go by the words sovereignty, polarity, and coherence. And, and they're really interesting words because they're not obvious. You know, you could actually go for something different um, and it would still be valid. So, the, so for me, they have meaning because they're not necessarily obvious and they're not something where you're like, well, you know, would my value be dishonesty? Well, no, <laughs> but you know, but you, you know, you, you could, you could actually pick different words to these that, that are somewhat opposite to these and still have a valid culture and business. Perfect. Thanks everyone. I think um, time and wise, we'll just leave it there. So that was today's episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. If you are hiring for a new technical role or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Rachel Connolly and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at rachel.connolly at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again next time.